Hello, and welcome to another podcast of U.S. History Repeated with Jimmy and Gene. This is Jimmy LaSalle. Now, let me say that I've been looking forward to this one because I love music. I love all kinds of music. I used to DJ in college. I appreciate all forms, and today we're going to talk about jazz. Jazz is one of the earliest forms of pop music in the United States, and jazz is a distinctively American style of music originating in the early decades of the 20th century. Its roots include Afro-American folk music traditions such as spirituals, work songs, and blues. Now, jazz is often compared to the blues, but jazz is much more lively, much more upbeat than the blues are. Jazz is often associated with swinging and swaying movements, lively atmospheres, improv. Lots of modern musicians will say that they're greatly influenced by jazz. Some of the great jazz musicians include Louis Armstrong, Duke Ellington, John Coltrane, Bessie Smith, Fletcher Henderson, Billie Holiday. In fact, a lot of performers that you know of, Elvis Presley, Chuck Berry, The Rolling Stones, The Doors, The Grateful Dead, Aerosmith, so many more talk about their jazz influences. Music styles like rock, R&B, hip-hop, Latin music, pop, other styles that produce a swaying rhythm are all influenced by jazz. In today's podcast, we have a very special guest, the very accomplished Lauren Schoenberg. He's the founding director at the National Jazz Museum in Harlem. He teaches jazz history at the Juilliard School in New York City. Gene and Lauren had a great conversation that we recorded. That's the meat of this podcast. And now I'm going to turn it over to our resident history expert, Gene Anzanakis. Jeannie and Lauren, take it away. Today we're speaking with Lauren Schoenberg. He's a senior scholar at the National Jazz Museum in Harlem. Tell me your story. How, how, how did you get involved in music? How did you get involved with jazz? Well, as a young child, I was musical and took piano lessons in suburban New Jersey when I was about four or five years old, and then picked up the saxophone uh, in high school. And it was a good time. Uh, it was the early 70s. And there were still a lot of the original musicians from the early days of jazz around. And they were playing and they weren't quite as celebrated as they shouldn't have been, most of them. So you could, they were a lot more accessible. Uh, and um, so I moved to New York to go to Manhattan School of Music, music theory major. But I was living on the Upper West Side because Manhattan School of Music had no dormitories. So I was living near 112th and Riverside Drive. And around the corner was a club called the West End. And at the West End, a lot of the people who used to play with Count Basie and Duke Ellington, a lot of the older black musicians, were playing. And because I loved that music uh, and I played piano and saxophone, I became like the uh, all-purpose substitute uh, okay. because I lived around the corner. So if someone didn't show up, they'd say, hey, Lauren lives, you know. On the, on the... So I wound up uh, getting as much of a musical education from those folks as I did going to music school and wound up playing professionally uh, throughout my college years with a lot of these uh, neglected and forgotten giants. Uh, and then um, then I went to work for Benny Goodman and uh, started a career in New York as a band leader and as a saxophone player and uh, did radio and uh, did a little bit of writing and stuff. And that kind of launched me into my career. And then um, in 2001, well, in the year 2000, actually, there was an effort to get something called the National Jazz Museum in Harlem going, and it had failed. Uh, I, I forgot to mention that when I was 14, I used to take the bus in from New Jersey and volunteer at a place called the New York Jazz Museum, 
uh, in the early 70s, mid-70s. It only lasted a few years. So something about a jazz museum was kind of in my background. And uh, when I was in my early 40s, a, a wonderful man named Leonard Garment uh, approached me and said, hey, you know, we're trying to get a jazz museum going, and it kind of failed, and we got some money from Congress, and who should we get to kind of put this thing together? And I said, what about me? You know, I'd, I'd, I'd be interested. And that started this a chapter of my life that started just about 20, a little over 20 years ago. And I was the executive director and we built the thing. And uh, then uh, we got big enough. We're so very small staff, full-time staff of six or seven, but um, where we needed to actually have it an administrative staff. But in my years there, I bought in uh, my student, John Batiste, when he was 18 to become our, uh, one of our co-directors along with Christian McBride. Wow. And I bought Ken Burns and and Wynton Marsalis onto the board because I had worked with them a lot. And so, uh, I mean, I'm name dropping, but but it was because of people like that that the museum really kind of got going. Sure. And we're a Smithsonian affiliate and I teach. Uh, right now I'm teaching at Juilliard and, and uh, <laughs> that's a, a 142 second summary of my life. No, that's incredible. You know, as as a teacher in, in New York City, I, I taught starting in in 2005 but one of the biggest components that I always tried to bring into my history lessons was really music and when looking at our episode on the Harlem Renaissance I said I cannot do this justice if I don't speak to the musical element within this and jazz is critical in that sense music I always found was such a hook for my students whenever I would play it, because at first, you know, they would, you know, roll their eyes and try to act as if they didn't like it. Um, but I would see them towards the end of the day and they would tell me without fail, I can't get that song out of my head. Or they would, you know, we would start a new unit and they would say, are you going to play music? And I said, oh, of course, you know, of course I'm <laughs> going to play music. But when it comes to jazz music, I think it's a genre of music that people don't often go to when it comes to listen to music. And I wish that they did. It's just such an incredible art form and a form of expression. And to start off our conversation, where does jazz music originate from? Where is its roots? Well, its roots are in two places, uh, in Africa and in the United States. And... Look, the things you said really, really resonate with me because, look, we're conceived in rhythm, okay, mm. and the heartbeat and 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 all that stuff. And so, you know, it's only natural that rhythm is going to be something that, you know, that captivates people, especially young people, you know. And I'm not even sure that jazz is the right word. Now, I'm, as, as we get into it, uh, we're going to find out that actually jazz played a very a minimal part in the Harlem Renaissance. But African-American culture and African-American music did. And it's even more interesting to find out about jazz in the Harlem Renaissance because although most of the African-American intellectuals who we who created what we call the Harlem Renaissance condescended to jazz or misunderstood it, the great majority of them, as the years have gone by, Anything that happened in African-American culture in the 1920s 
is glommed onto the Harlem Renaissance because Duke Ellington and Bessie Smith and Ethel Waters and Louis Armstrong and all these things happened in the 20s. But the truth is, at the time, they were not part of what was known as the Harlem Renaissance. So now what's interesting now is, is that they try and claim credit for it. And there's even hardly any point in, in making the argument anymore that they weren't part of it because they're perceived to have been part of it. So in a sense, we kind of redefine the Harlem Renaissance to be anything African-American that happened in and around Harlem at that time. You know, but it's Harlem- interesting that yeah. I just started to cut you off because in every history textbook that I have ever used, and I've begged for new ones, and they're always like, sorry, this is the budget. Your description, that's the, the paragraph or two of the Harlem Renaissance. Those individuals, they're in bold print, and that's it. You're absolutely right. Yeah. You, you, you put your finger right on it. And so what it means is to say, do we want to talk about the Harlem Renaissance as it occurred at the time? And what it, what it represented in the 1920s? Or do we want to talk about how it's perceived now and what it stands for now? And those are two separate things. Uh, and so it's a not quite a subtle distinction, but an important one. Uh, but let's let's try and blend it into your first question, which was, you know, where does jazz come from and all that kind of stuff. Basically speaking, it was something that, let's put it this way, if we could zero in on something in in North America, that would be the meeting point between uh, the African retentions of African culture and what happened as enslaved people moved around the world and and became catalysts for culture uh, in every continent and every country that they went to, and jazz music, what we call jazz. It would probably be in the Black churches of the 19th century in the South, where you really start to get codified this rhythm of, you know, I mean, you know, whatever rhythm you want to think of in jazz, like, you know, one, two, ten, ten, you know, whatever jazz is and the expression and the body movement that goes with it and the feeling of it, it really kind of came from the black church and, um, and call and response and the attitude of improvisation and the feeling of like, uh, I'll put it this way, my own religious background and music, I'm Jewish and, um, I'll put it this way. Uh, <clears throat> most of the music that I heard coming up in the synagogues that I was in wasn't designed to make you happy. I'll put it that <laughs> way. Uh, it, was, it had other meanings and other reasons, and that's all wonderful and great. But it wasn't to like make you feel elated at the end and, and like, sure. you know, with a big smile on your face. And somehow the deal of coping with the insanity of racism and the insanity of and the and the truth of the American experience and all those kind of things, you begin to see how the African American church was a place for kind of like spiritual renewal and some kind of rhythm and some kind of something to get people to a point where they could overcome or deal with the daily, daily issues. And that's where jazz kind of comes from. The elements of jazz, you know, there's so many different types of music. What is it? What are the elements of jazz that make it such a distinctive genre of music? I'll start by saying that the music's greatest composer, and of course, there's no such thing as the greatest, but if we were to say greatest, I'd have to say Duke Ellington. Uh, although I'd also be good to talk about who's alive, who's writing. But uh Ellington and others wanted to get rid of the word because it's a loaded word. 
And it's a word that was put on the music that they they didn't put on the music. And most of the words that we associate with jazz are labels and names that came from commercial and de definitely not African-American uh, people. And so the, there were words put on it. You know, we don't call Beethoven's music ba-ba-ba-bum music. Okay. <laughs> you know, right? That's true. I, I love that ba 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 bum music. No, it's classical. You have to talk about it like it, you know, like it's some great thing, you know, which it is. But but we don't use an onomatopoetic word for a rhythm like we do with bebop or a lot of these other words. Uh, what's jazz? Well, that's uh, I wrote a book. It's called <laughs> the NPR Cur Curious Listener's Guide to Jazz. And I think I started with just like, if you want to figure that out, you know, Forget it, because nobody really knows. But uh, if you have to define it, I would say it's something that is rooted in its tradition. And by tradition, we would say Louis Armstrong and Duke Ellington and, and Billie Holiday and all those great people uh, that constantly renews itself. And somehow, it's like an equation. The equation is A, the tradition of it, and B is the contemporary sounds and moment of time that the person is creating it now and if you blend those two things then you kind of get jazz but i think the real answer would be that there's a river of what began as american culture and it's an african-american river you know it's like a river with with ports and you have blues and you have ragtime and this is such a cliche but it's it's a good one, and, and I, I think it's a good way to think about it. New Orleans jazz, and then uh, Chicago, and then the swing, what we call swing music, and then the music of Charlie Parker and John Coltrane, and then R&B, and then, and then rock and roll, and then soul music, and then hip-hop. It's really more of a way station in that story, and it's better understood like that than something really, really unique. Now, one of the problems with jazz is that it's lost its functionality. And so when it was created, Armstrong and Ellington really aren't jazz musicians, if you use the contemporary definition. Because right now, jazz represents something kind of in a niche. It represents something that most people don't listen to, most people don't buy, and bears the weight of exclusion. That's what most people feel about it. A lot of people, Wynton Marsalis and, and John Batiste and many others, many, many others, uh, fight that every day. But the feeling is, well, I'll demonstrate it this way. So I started playing professionally 45 years ago. Okay, great. So to this day, if I tell people I'm a jazz musician, and this is no exaggeration, this is not hyperbole, this is literal, 98 out of the 100 people will say, Oh, really? Oh, that's interesting. You know, I don't know anything about jazz, but but that's that's great. Now, when you go to a restaurant and you order chicken, do you say to the waiter, I'll have the chicken. By the way, I don't know much about chickens, but I'll have it anyway. <laughs> you don't feel the need to express your ignorance about something that you like. Yeah. And jazz has this thing where people feel as though there's something to know that they don't know. So when I say it's lost its functionality, what I mean is Armstrong and Ellington, they wanted everybody to love their music. They wanted to play the music of today. They did not want to deal with a small little bunch of people with slide rulers and calculators listening to something so complicated that, you know, that you got to try and figure it out.
So their music, they wanted people to romance to and to dance to and to sing to and to listen to functionally, yeah, not yeah. sitting in a, the strange thing with jazz is that this intensely rhythmic music is now played for the majority of people sitting static in a chair. And I don't get it. I think that resonates with the Harlem Renaissance itself. The Harlem Renaissance has all of these different layers. It's an intellectual layer. It's it's an intellectual movement. It's a social movement. It's an artistic movement. There's this explosion of creativity within Harlem. And you have you have writers, you have artists, you have photographers, you have sculptors, you have musicians, you have activists, and you have actors, you have playwrights. So, you know, the Harlem Renaissance changes the way that the Black experience is being portrayed within American society. And when we talk about jazz music, it, it's something that really kind of fuels the Harlem Renaissance in a way. It didn't at the time, but let's talk about it. You know, your point about the Harlem Renaissance is so interesting. I, th I think you put it perfectly. Uh, you know, the Harlem Renaissance, let, let's just say 1920, you know, we could argue about is a little before, is a little bit after, but let's just say 1920. Okay, so 1920 is 55 years after the end of the Civil War. So it's historical terms, it's, it's yesterday. And this group of intellectuals and, and, and artists and poets and painters, they're desperate to recast the way that African-Americans are seen. Minstrelsy is still a huge part, or its, it's echoes of it are still a huge part of popular entertainment. It's how most African-Americans are seen by non-African-Americans. And so these people get together to radically redefine. So you have County Cullen and you have, uh, actually, I'm going to stop naming names, but you have all these wonderful people at the root, W.E.B., Du Bois and others. Sure. And they are, are hell-bent on redefining how people perceive African-Americans. Now, a career in jazz, which was a brand new thing at the time, was for most of these people, if their sons or daughters had wanted to be in the jazz world. The jazz world at the time would be much like now talking about the hip hop world or something like uh, in popular music, something that old people didn't like, or, you know, or, you know, I mean, hip hop is old now, but, but it would be something very contemporary. That would have been a step down. They didn't want to hear that music. It was redolent of the South. It was redolent of, of, a, of a freedom of sexuality. It was redolent of young people dancing and drinking and, and having fun. The music that they were interested in was music that aspired to be either classical music or church music or mm -hmm. serious things. And so jazz was a, a, a dirty word almost to the great majority of people throughout the Harlem Renaissance with two notable exceptions. And they're the ones who we tag on to now, but it's just important to codify them as the exceptions to the rule, as opposed yeah, to yeah. the rule. And that's Zora Neale Hurston and Langston Hughes. Uh, and so they are leading lights of the Harlem Renaissance in retrospect. But at the time, they were just among the people uh, of the Harlem Renaissance. So uh, Paul Robeson, 
fascinating figure at that time who who loved jazz. But no, none of them were celebrating Duke Ellington. None of them were celebrating Bessie Smith or Fletcher Henderson or Louis Armstrong. You'll find nothing about them in any of the literature, the contemporary literature of the Harlem Renaissance. And jazz will sneak in again through, mostly through Langston Hughes. What I hope people take away from this episode is, is I want them to have a spark of curiosity. That's that's always my goal. I I love people. I love talking to people. I love finding out what makes them tick. And with what people enjoy listening to, I always find so interesting. If I've never listened to it, I'll give it a whirl. I'll, you know, I'll give it a listen. You know, this is a podcast that's of course geared towards teachers and 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 students, but we have really have grown to have a global following. But for somebody who has never listened to jazz music, to open their mind to it, to hopefully open their heart to it, who should they be listening to? Who should okay, they give yeah. a try? Good question. Yeah, because I don't want to be a buzzkill like you. you. You want to pump up the Harlem Renaissance and jazz, and I'm saying it had nothing to do with it. Like, that's not exactly a great place to start the discussion. Can I bleed into your question? Sure. Okay. All right. You know, what's really fascinating about the Harlem Renaissance is that now the Harlem Renaissance in, in today's world encompasses jazz music. Of course it does. Because in retrospect, the the headline news in terms of how it affected the world were the jazz artists of that time. What Louis Armstrong did, what Duke Ellington did, what Billie Holiday did. She's a little bit later, but nonetheless. And so the Harlem Renaissance occurred at the same time as all those things. And so if we look at the Harlem Renaissance from today's perspective, yes, of course it includes all those people. It's interesting that at the time, it really didn't. And because they wanted to elevate, they didn't want to deal with popular things. They didn't want to deal with the blues, except for Langston Hughes and a few others. So I really like the current definition of the Harlem Renaissance because it does bring in all these um, vernacular things that for the most part were left out. The fascinating thing about a jazz performance and the thing that I think really you know, there, there's the old saying, it don't mean a thing if it ain't got that swing, right? Yeah. What, did, what does swing mean? They asked Duke Ellington once because that was his song. And he said, well, it's something that encourages the terpiscorian urge, typical Ellington 10-letter word. The terpiscorian urge means to dance. And to dance means to shake your rear end <laughs> and to have a lot of fun with it. And the thing about jazz is, is that it has a rhythm to it. And it has a spontaneity to it. Look, there's improvised music all over the world. You can't say that improvisation is unique to jazz. But there's something about jazz music that is different every time it's performed. If I go to hear a great band play uh, or a great play or a great classical music concert or something like this, nine out of ten times I do it the same every way. Maybe a little bit faster, a little bit slower or whatever, but it's mostly the same. A jazz performance is 50% the band and 50% the audience. Now, that sounds like kind of a glib kind of thing to say, but it's really true, and I've experienced it. The vibration of the audience feeds the band, and the band takes the vibration from the audience and gives it back to them. And the jazz musicians can alter what they're playing. A great way to think about jazz is kind of like theme and variations. Let's use this example. Uh, it's Thanksgiving time, and the kids all want to watch The Wizard of Oz. Great. Everybody knows the story. They want to watch it for the 50th time. Something happens in the house. You can't play the movie of The Wizard of Oz. Everybody's crying and sad. Say, so, okay, kids, guess, guess what we're going to do? We're going to act it out here. 
Now, you don't have to remember every line of the movie, but you know it starts here with Dorothy's in Kansas, and then they go here, and then there are these funny people, and then there's this old guy, the wizard, and all this kind of stuff happens. I want you to do the play. We'll do it right here. You're going to make it up, but you got to hit these points. It's kind of what a jazz performance is. And the direction of the jazz performance comes from the audience. I believe it. You know, I think <laughs> just to liken it to my own experience as a teacher, the best lessons are when I have gotten lost in the story that I'm telling. And I kind of come to a bit and I see the kids like this on the edge of their desk. Yeah. And I know that they've gotten lost in it too. That is what they are going to remember. And I think that I have come up with a lesson and I might teach it three or four times in a day. And that lesson comes to life three or four different ways because the audience is different. The way that the children or the young adults in my case, the way that they're going to latch on to the information is different. The questions that they're going to ask are different. And the conversation is going to move like water in very different ways. And so I think that audience participation, whether it's an audience that's listening to a concert or whether it's a group of people listening to a discussion or whether it's you and I, you know, this conversation would have gone very differently had I interviewed somebody else. So I think it's it's a, it's a question of the audience or the people involved in this discussion is going to direct the end result. And I think you're you hit the nail on the head. A good teacher is a jazz musician or is doing the same thing that a jazz musician does, which is you're confronted with your lesson plan for the day. You're in the middle of a semester. You know you have to cover this and you have to cover this, but you got to do it in a way that engages your students. Yeah. And we all know what one good question can do mm -hmm. from your students. And it's a matter of how do you deal with that question? I think of it like a tennis game. You're hitting the ball and <laughs> nobody's really hitting the ball back and one student picks up the racket and goes ding and all of a sudden you got to scramble a little bit and try and and return that serve so when people say you know that they don't know what jazz is or or they don't know enough about it i say are you a teacher yeah you think you're a good teacher yeah well then guess what you're doing the exact same thing that a jazz musician does with your words and with your lesson plan you're improvising but you have a theme but you got to kind of get through it and hopefully you have a rhythm to what you do yeah. And rhythm to the way that you present. I think that's a, I've never quite thought of it like that. I'm glad that you asked that question. Yeah. And I, and I think that, you know, I would always say there's a method to my madness and you might not know what it is at the beginning of the lesson, but at the end of it, there will be this aha moment. And I would always laugh because they would look at me to be like, oh, sneaky. Like she got <laughs> us to do this and we didn't even realize what was happening. And I think that that's a lot of what improvisation is. And I think it's a beautiful thing. And from somebody who, who built this jazz museum from the ground up, what are your favorite pieces? What do you think are the best elements within the museum itself? You know, at one time I was working with the Smithsonian Jazz Orchestra and I was in the National Museum of American History. And one of the curators said, man, you got to see this exhibit we just did on Julia Child. It's the yeah, her kitchen is there. And I said, great, I love Julia Child. So we're about to walk into it. And I turned to him and I said, tell me there's no food in there, right? <laughs> like joking. <laughs> And he said, no, of course there's no food. This is a museum, you know. So how can you have an exhibit about Julia Child where people don't eat? Well, at the Jazz Museum, early on, we decided that there had to be music. 
There had to be live music. There had to be that interaction all the time. You can have the greatest exhibits and the great, we have Duke Ellington's piano. We have some of the greatest things in the world in terms of artifacts. And we put together, you know, the images and the history, I think in a really, really good way. But we have music all the time. And we have another responsibility that we pay. And we have a lot of young people come to play, you know what I mean? Because, you know, they're available and they're around and all this kind of stuff. But we pay everybody because the arts world is forever. Oh, I'm having a party Saturday night. Oh, Lauren, great. Would you like to come? Oh, I'd love to come. Thanks. Well, Lauren, you know, why don't you bring your saxophone just by the way? Because a whole bunch of very important people, which means people with money, are going to be there. And, you know, you never know. They never think. I mean, if I was a proctologist, would they ask me the same question? I would hope not. <laughs> okay. Okay. The reason that I mention that is, is that we have a very, what I would say, culturally responsible and healthy environment where we hire musicians, we have live music, we get to see how the people interact with them, we go out to schools, and the feeling of what happens on a bandstand in that social intercourse, I like to think kind of like really suffuses everything that we do. First and foremost, education, interaction, live music. And then through that, then we can kind of start to talk about the history and, and all this kind of stuff. One more thought, just bouncing off of another question that you asked, which was, um, you know, I think jazz, jazz is really, for me, the best window in, into American history. Mm. If I were to have a crossword puzzle, and I were to put the name Armstrong, as in Louis Armstrong, in the center of the crossword puzzle. And I don't think that this is exaggeration. There's, I'll use a double negative. There's nowhere that I can't go in world history throughout a letter in Armstrong's name that somehow relates to him, whether it's Africa, whether it's music, whether uh, it's just name it. He's that kind of figure. And so to teach American history, I think jazz is the perfect entry point. And it brings us to the Harlem Renaissance. There's a, there's an R's for Renaissance in Armstrong's name. And how and why did he fit into it? Did he or didn't he? And why? In many ways, jazz is a musical reflection of the Constitution of the United States. I mean, these are not my thoughts. These are things that Albert Murray and Stanley Crouch and Ralph Ellison and people like that wrote about, and I'm just repeating it. But if you think of the Constitution, uh, it, it's a fascinating document because it has improvisation in it. It has windows that can be opened, and those are the amendments of the Constitution. And so we can get rid of the things that stunk to high heaven when the uh, Constitution was, was written, and we can change them. A jazz performance is kind of like the Constitution, that the, the document itself is the song that we're playing, but we can change it. We can open the windows. In the middle of it, we can improvise. And the people who created the Harlem Renaissance wanted to do the same thing to say, well, you think poetry is not written by African-Americans. You think, quote unquote, high literature is not written by. You think that a certain kind of painting is not done by us. Well, guess what? We're going to open the windows of American culture in a certain kind of way and say, guess what? We're here. We have geniuses in and amongst us, and you're going to have to breathe that air. And in a sense, the Harlem Renaissance still lives. 
Yeah. And I like the analogy you give of, of the window, looking back at different points in history and seeing what happened. If you could travel back in time, what you would really see, you know, to be that fly on the wall, what you would notice, what you would pick up as opposed to maybe what got lost or what was selected to be written down in history and taken as this is what happened. This is the story. These are the victors. These are the losers. You look at the history of Harlem itself. If you traveled back in time far enough, you would see farmland. You would see Native Americans. You would see eventually you would see uh, Italian, Jewish, German immigrants. You would see eventually buildings, you know, going up. And it's such a rich and interesting history. I love doing walking tours whenever I go to a new place or and I, and I love to travel, but I've done walking tours around Harlem and going to the different shops, peeking into different restaurants, sitting down and having a meal and really literally and figuratively getting the flavor of a place is really the only way you get a full understanding. And I, I love Harlem because of that. And I hope that when people listen to this episode, if they live close enough to visit, that they will. And for people who don't, I hope that they will take the time to read the writings of Langston Hughes or Zora Neale Hurst, to listen to the music of the era and really get a feel for it. Zora Neale Hurston and Langston Hughes, and a little bit later, Ralph Ellison and Albert Murray and James Baldwin and all those people uh, and people today also. When people come to visit the National Jazz Museum in Harlem, you know, we're at West 129th Street and Malcolm X Boulevard, also known as Lenox Avenue. If you were to arrive on a subway, let's say at 125th Street and walk to us, you are on the same sidewalks that Zora Neale Hurston, Langston Hughes, Michael Jackson, Mm -hmm. John Coltrane, uh, Muhammad Ali, James Baldwin, the exact same sidewalks because Harlem has retained 99% of its original look and zoning. The people who live there, that's changing and it's always changed. But the scale of the buildings, if you were to stand at Malcolm X and 129th and look up and down or any of the great large Boulevard avenues in Harlem, it looks, I would say, 80%, 90% like it looked 100 years ago. There's something, you know, you can talk about, I'll put it this way. I was trained music. I went to a conservatory, et cetera, et cetera. I didn't really understand opera until I went to Italy. And I heard the language spoken and I was in that culture. And then all of a sudden I went like, you know, now I got it. And in the same way, uh, Harlem retains that essence. There's something there that you can't bottle. Thank you for taking the time to speak with me today, for your knowledge and your expertise. It was just such a fabulous, fabulous discussion. Yes, thank you, Lauren. And thank you to Jean for organizing this interview. I can tell you that my curiosity was sparked and I went down the jazz rabbit hole just a little. I mean, if you like Frank Sinatra, go check out some of the artists I mentioned and see how many songs Sinatra redid. All of Me, The Way You Look Tonight, that was a Billie Holiday one, just to name a few. Listen to Ole by John Coltrane, and then listen to The Doors Light My Fire, specifically the piano solo. Louis Armstrong has many songs that stand the test of time. What a Wonderful World, Mac the Knife, Hello Dolly, so many. In fact, wherever you stream music from, go and find the Louis Armstrong Essentials. There are duets with Ella Fitzgerald, 
maybe start there. And when you do listen, I'll bet you find your feet tapping. That's all for today. I'll skip the regular sign-off and just ask that you follow our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and maybe a social platform or two. Jean does put out the occasional history riddle. They're fun. Maybe more fun for her. But there's always more to learn. Talk to you soon.